WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at WVEW.org. Welcome to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections on air every Sunday at 1 p.m. We are a project of Educational Praxis and the Spark Teacher Education Institute, a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Indigo Radio, and our show is recorded and posted to SoundCloud and the iTunes Store. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. Last week, we replayed our show, Letters of George Jackson, where hosts from Indigo Radio read letters that the revolutionary political prisoner George Jackson wrote while he was locked up in San Quentin Prison. Check out that show on SoundCloud or iTunes. This week, we're going to be playing Brattleboro Solidarity's Palestine and Hiroshima event, which took place earlier this month on August 6th. Brat Solidarity was joined by Professor Reiko Kato, Reverend Michael Yoshi, and Executive Director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, Lara Kiswani. Professor Riko Kato from Japan discusses the past and continued struggles of those affected by the U.S. dropping of the atomic bomb 76 years ago. Reverend Michael Yoshi joined us from the West Coast, where he participates in and organizes Palestine solidarity work. He discusses the connections to the suffering of Japanese Americans during their internment, their connections to the struggles of brothers and sisters in Palestine, and describes his work as a reverend within the Methodist Church. Reverend Yoshi is organizing a campaign against land annexation in the West Bank, particularly the village of Wadi Fukim. You can contact Brattleboro Solidarity if you're interested in joining his campaign to get U.S. legislators to push Israel to halt mass evictions of the indigenous Palestinian families in Silwan, Sheikh Jarrah, El Welaja, and Wadi Fukim. Lara Kiswani is a Palestinian activist who works to educate and organize around working class and Palestinian struggles. Her description of international solidarity work is especially important. And so we hope that you will enjoy our show today. Our three guests help us make connections around the world, help us to understand the struggle against perpetual war and militarism, and energize us with our knowledge and work to do more and do better. We'll start off with the introduction of our event. Here is myself and Nina helping us to make connections and and deepen our understanding. And just a bit of background for our listeners, Brattleboro Solidarity began as Brattleboro Solidarity with Palestine in the summer of 2014 in response to the indiscriminate bombing of of Gaza by the Israeli government. 
Today, Brattleboro Solidarity organizes study groups and educational events like the one we'll listen to today and works as a part of the Solidarity Coalition in Brattleboro, organizing with the Root Social Justice Center, Lost River Racial Justice, 350.org, the Debt Collective, the Tenants Union of Brattleboro, or TUB, and other organizations. Come down to Solidarity Fridays at Pliny Park every Friday at 5 p.m. to discuss the ongoing work of these groups, to highlight the injustice in our world, and work towards a world we wish to see where profit doesn't dominate over the lives and humanity of, of ordinary people. And here's the introduction to Brattleboro Solidarity's event. Thanks for listening to Indigo Radio. First and foremost, we are here to commemorate the horrific U.S. bombing of Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, which took the lives of hundreds of thousands and continues to poison Japanese youth and children today. As we look towards the world we wish to see, we remember the atomic bomb dropped on Japanese civilians. Today, 76 years later, we must say we are against the pillaging of the world and of our human community. We know that U.S. wars of domination continue to rage across the world in Afghanistan, Syria, Colombia, Guatemala, and Honduras, in Lebanon, and Yemen, in Ukraine, in Sudan, and Zimbabwe, in Cuba, and Venezuela. They are not wars of, quote, democracy and national defense as advertised. But instead, history teaches us they are wars for control over markets, over foreign governments, over food and oil, over land and resources, over the lives of ordinary people. One such war in Palestine is heavily funded by the U.S. government. More than 3.8 billion US dollars per year given to Israel to commit atrocities against the Palestinian people. We have read stories of entire families, four generations, wiped off the earth by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza, have seen the terror imposed on Palestinians and led by Israeli settlers. We watch the Palestinians of Sheikh Jarrah defend their homes and resist expulsion. Palestinians resist because of and despite their circumstances. They give us daily lessons in resilience and hope as they throw meager stones towards massive U.S.-funded tanks. The funds we need to house and clothe and feed our children are sent abroad to wage war and destruction. For whose benefit? Certainly not ours. This community has seen hundreds of houseless people struggle to stay warm each winter. It has seen a nationwide addiction crisis spiral out of control locally as young people watch their friends overdose, has hundreds of children to feed, lacks proper and affordable health care. Why? Why do we allow our tax dollars that are so desperately needed here to be sent abroad to destroy other communities. This must stop. 
We must work with courage and energy to ensure that US wars and genocide end. We must work with urgency to build a better future for our children, to resist the dehumanization and inhumanity that the US government spreads across our nation and the globe. We must remember the student struggle against the US war in Vietnam, the massive marches against the invasion of Iraq, the sacrifice of whistleblowers like Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, and Julian Assange. These must be our examples moving forward together. We hope to act together as a community in memory of those killed at Hiroshima, in hopes for those struggling to keep their children alive in Palestine, in dedication to the Asian American community struggling against violence here in the U.S. and to those still struggling here in Brattleboro and Southern Vermont. Thank you again for this opportunity. So um, um, I will be talking about Hiroshima, but especially about the news that we recently heard that people who were exposed to radioactive black rain that fell in the city of Hiroshima after the atomic bombing won the court case against the country and 84 plaintiffs, uh, plaintiffs uh, officially now granted Hibakusha status, which came out about 10 days ago. Well, atomic bomb was dropped today, well, yesterday in Japan, 76 years ago, which means it took 76 years for Japan to officially recognize the internal exposure of radio, uh, radiation and damage on human bodies. So today I will talk very, very briefly about the continued struggle of Hibakusha, survivors of atomic bombs. So this um, is a quote from a sixth grade social study uh, textbook. This is how Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and dropping of the atomic bombs are described. Um, I'm just going to, uh, I just translated into English. The US military dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima on August 6 and Nagasaki on August 9. Mushroom clouds climbed to 10,000 meters above the ground and the heat rays and blast destroyed buildings and burned people. It looked like hell. More than 300,000 people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki together were killed by the atomic bombs. Even today, there are many people still suffering from after effect. Oftentimes when we discuss about uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we talk about what happened that day, who did it, or why it happened. But uh, however, the Black Rain lawsuit made me revisit the last sentence. Even today, there are many people still suffering from after effect. What does this sentence mean? When I saw this sentence, my initial thought was A-bomb sickness. However, as you think of the history of court cases and suffering of Hibakusha, it is not only medical or health problems, but more of legal, political, and social problems. So after dropping of A-bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, US military investigated on the effect of nuclear weapons. This is a record you can find at the website of Atomic Archive. It says General Farrell, who was the deputy commander of the Manhattan Project and head of the medical section, arrived in Yokohama, Japan, on 30 August 1945. And it goes on, 
preliminary inspection of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were made on 8 to 9 and 13 to 14 September, respectively. The special group spent 16 days in Nagasaki and four days in Hiroshima, during which time they collected as much information as was possible under the directives which called for a prompt report. 16 days or four days, of course, after General Farrell and his team left, the investigation were continued by Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission, which was established in 1946 by the order of the US President Truman. Very briefly describing about the US military investigation, of course, they collected much, much more records, but I will not go into the details today. The reason I'm sharing this sentence it's because their attitude and conclusion affected Hibakusha and their struggles for the recognition greatly. General Farrell held press conference on September 6, which was before even going to Hiroshima or Nagasaki, and said in Hiroshima and Nagasaki here at the beginning of September, anyone liable to die has already died and no one is suffering from atomic radiation. Similarly, in 1950s, ABCC, which collected all the samples of survivors, made a comment that atomic bomb sickness is now completely cured and there are no noticeable effects remaining. Survivors who were suffering and medical doctors in Hiroshima and Nagasaki who are treating survivors have been appealing against this statement. However, it sets the tune of so-called scientific research what they did was is focusing damage on nuclear weapon on only on the heat and the blast at the time of the explosion and masked or minimized the effect of radiation, both short and long-term on human bodies. Hence, the suffering of survivors expanded not only about health, but to recognition of the status of political, legal, and social issues. The first court case started in 1955 by three survivors. At this point, Japanese government had no legislation supporting the survivors. Three of them filed against the country. Tokyo District Court dismissed their claim, yet stated the use of atomic bombers violation of international law. Meanwhile, government passed a law supporting the survivors and they started to distribute Hibakusha Techo, a booklet that certifies its holders as a victim of the bombing. However, not all Hibakusha was granted to receive Hibakusha Techo. Since then, the struggle for recognition started and the time and space became an issue, such as where were you at the time of the explosion? When did you enter the area? How long was the rainfall? When were you born? There are Hibakusha Nisei, second generation, who are not exposed to radiation directly, but still suffering with genetic effect, but not recognized. In addition, nationality and the court or uh, country of residence were also used to draw lines to decide whether you are a Hibakusha or not. The issue of nationality concerned Japanese imperialism, obviously, but I don't have time to go into the details today. So this is a map of Hiroshima. Uh, red covered, er, covered area in the center is the originally recognized area as directly damaged by a bomb, which uh, with heat and blast. In 1976, 
the area of a heavy black rainfall was added to recognize Hibakusha, which is indicated with green. In 2021, 10 days ago, the area with blue circle, within blue circle, was recognized as affected area. The line was drawn based on the length of the rainfall, more than one hour or less. Outer red circle is the area of black rainfall speculated by the city of Hiroshima, however, not recognized yet. There is a Hibakusha testimony that she was at the border of green and blue line, uh, green line, at the time of the black rain. Her sister, who was across the river from their house, which was within the green area, was recognized as Hibakusha. 1976 amendment, while herself and other sisters who were at home in blue area, just one small river between them did not receive support or recognition, as if the wind didn't blow and there was a shield between them. There are many uncertainties remains after 75 plus years. There are many lines criteria created to decide who is Hibakusha, but that is not scientifically based. The science they claim was biased by the U.S. military who wished to avoid international criticism and also wanted to reduce the fear of among American military personnel stationed in Japan. Also, this cause of no harm by radiation worsened the mental status of Hibakusha. We know there are Hibakusha who did not talk about their exposure because they were afraid of discrimination and also influence on their children. They had been quietly suffering Hibakushas and Hibakushanise are aging, that it is difficult to prove their sickness and airborne relations. So experience of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are connected to our current issues. Japan, along with other nuclear power nations, has not signed the treaty banning nuclear weapons. Yesterday at the ceremony of Hiroshima commemoration ceremony in Hiroshima, Prime Minister Suga uh, in the press conference said they have no plan of signing the treaty. They take up the discourse of nuclear weapon being effective strategy of deterrence. They still take up the discourse of damage of nuclear weapon is limited only to heat and blast at the time of explosion and continue to use depleted uranium which cause low-level and internal radiation exposure. And of course, Fukushima poses the question about peaceful use of nuclear energy. There was a debate whether there should be a moment of silence prayer at the Tokyo Olympics game, which is held right now. IOC decided not to have the moment, despite the fact that President Buck visiting Hiroshima beforehand. It is consideration for people in the world who suffered by Japanese imperialism and militarism. While talking about Hiroshima, I must listen to the voices of victims of the Japanese war crimes as well. Many people were killed and underwent unspeakable suffering because of Japanese aggression. Today, other speakers will be talking about experience of Palestine, prolonged suffering of people. I think it overlaps with the suffering of Hibakusha. That brings me to the uh, conclusion that in 2021, I think it is very important to reassert that all forms of aggression against human rights must be stopped. And thank you very much. And that was Professor Reiko Kato. Thank you so much, Reiko, for joining us. Now we're going to go to a song break. This is Bob Dylan, Masters of War. I'm your masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. 
Is it build all the bombs? Is it hide behind walls? Is it hide behind desks? I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks. You that never done nothing but build to destroy. You play with my world like it's your little toy. You put a gun in my hand and you hide from my eyes. Then you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly. Like Judas of old, you lie and deceive. A world war can be won. You want me to believe, but I see through your eyes and I see through your brain. Like I see through the water that runs down my drain. You fasten all the triggers for the others to fire. And then you sit back and watch when the death count gets higher. You hide in your mansion while the young people's blood flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud. He's thrown the worst fear that can ever be hurled. Fear to bring children. Into the world, for threatening my baby, unborn and unnamed. You ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins. How much do I know? But to talk out of turn. You might say that I'm young. You might say I'm unlearned. But there's a one thing I know. I'm younger than you. That even Jesus would never forgive what you do. Let me ask you one question. Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find when your death takes its toll. All the money you made will never buy back your soul. And I hope that you die, and your death will come soon. I follow your casket by the pale afternoon, and I watch while you're lost. 
down to your deathbed And I stand over your grave and I'm sure that you're dead Welcome back to Indigo Radio. We are on air every Sunday at 1 p.m. Now we're returning to our program. This is Nina introducing Reverend Michael Yoshi. Our next speaker is zooming in from California. His name is Reverend Michael Yoshi. He is an ordained clergy in the United Methodist Church. He retired in July 2020 after serving for 32 years as the pastor of the Buena Vista United Methodist Church in Alameda, California, an historically Japanese-American congregation. During his pastorate, the church was a hub for organizing on racial equity, affordable housing, renters' rights, LGBTQ inclusiveness, and immigrant rights. He has served the Global Church on the General Board of Global Ministries and was a founder of the United Methodist Kairos Response, an international network advocating for Palestine human rights. Reverend Yoshii currently serves on the International Campaign for Human Rights in the Philippines, Global Council, and is co-chair of the Friends of the Wadi Fokuin, an interfaith partnership with a Palestinian Muslim village in the occupied West Bank. So please welcome Reverend Michael Yoshii. Thank you very much. Greetings to everyone. And it's a pleasure to greet you from across the country. I'm actually in Northern California, uh, not Southern California. And I give you greetings from Chochenyo land, the city in which I live in just recently commemorated and celebrated the renaming of an Andrew Jackson Park to Chochenyo Park because the Chochenyo tribe were the indigenous people here in the land in which I am standing today. So we give you greetings to honor those people and their ancestors. I want to thank uh, Nicole for inviting me to join you today and share some perspectives uh, as a Japanese American and Asian American uh, on uh, our struggles that have taken place uh, both historically and even up to today and um, how they relate to solidarity with Palestine that, uh, that I'm engaged in today. And so, um, first of all, I want to just share appreciation to Reiko for the excellent condensed uh, presentation she made about the situation going back to 1945 with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, my own mother-in-law was a young teenager in Hiroshima when the bomb hit. Uh, she was miraculously survived that, as well as some other family members. She did pass away sometime later. Um, we weren't sure whether it was due to radiation or not, um, just because of the circumstances of her death. We in here in California have been involved in a group called Friends of Hibaksha, and Reiko mentioned the Hibaksha as the survivors of the bombing and have provided um, support through that organization to those who have continued to try to find uh, support for their medical needs and also for a variety of, of health issues that they continue to live with. And what we're finding even today that many of the Hibaksha have already passed away. There's, there's a handful that continue to live uh, who have been uh, survived from that uh, horrific event in 1945. Just the other day, we uh, shared a recording with our family to commemorate um, our mother-in-law and other uh, hibaksha in a Bay Area ceremony for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the point I want to raise is that we as Japanese Americans in this country 
Uh, there were many citizens of, of the United States who were in Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki when the bomb hit, and many of them came back to the United States and have sought to find remedies for their own health situations here in this soil as American citizens where uh, they were the recipients of the bomb that was dropped by the U.S. forces. What I have found over the years is that the Baksha have been uh, very challenged by the trauma of their memories, and uh, they have been courageous to tell their stories and to uh, relive the trauma in ways to educate people about the, the horrors of the atomic bomb and that uh, becoming a collective voice that it should never happen again. And so the refrain uh, goes on every year, no more Hiroshima's and no more Nagasaki's and very, very strong folks in the peace and justice movement, particularly in this past few years to support the passage of the treaty on prohibition of the nuclear weapons uh, which Reiko referred to. You know, what's interesting to me as well on this particular week as we commemorate uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki on the 6th and 9th is that on Tuesday, it's August the 10th, and that's also the anniversary of the passage of the Civil Liberties Act, uh, which was passed in August 10th, 1988, apologizing to Japanese Americans for the abridgments of our constitutional rights in 1941 in 1942 with the issuance of the Executive Order 9066 by President Roosevelt ordering Japanese Americans to mass incarceration. My own grandparents and parents were subjected to that. In my virtual uh, photo background here, this is actually from a cemetery where my grandparents are both buried on both sides of my family. My father's side had a uh, restaurant in Oakland, California, which they lost and they were summarily sent to a Tanferan racetrack and then later to Topaz, Utah. My mother's side of the family was from Fresno, California, where they had a farm in which they lost and they were sent to Jerome, Arkansas. These were two of the 10 sites, interior sites, uh, detention centers set up for Japanese Americans at that particular time. The Civil Liberties Act of 1988 issued an apology by Congress and also financial uh, monetary redress. And that was the culmination of uh, a decade-long movement for Japanese Americans to hear the stories of Japanese Americans through a commission that was established by Congress. And I was privileged to testify at the hearings in San Francisco in 1981. And so it's, that's 40 years ago to this week that that happened in the summer of 1981. And they took all of those testimonies and then uh, through subcommittees and through the process in Congress, finally came out with their report and also the legislation apologizing to Japanese Americans in 1988. In at that time, as they issued the statement, they they named three things as the causes of the mass incarceration. One was the wartime hysteria that people were going through, that they were not thinking clearly about things. And then two, that there was lack of political leadership, that people were not doing the right thing, and there was a lot of political rhetoric against Japanese Americans. And thirdly, pre-existing racism, that they affirmed and understood that historically Japanese Americans had gone through much racism over the course of time. In fact, from the times my grandparents uh, set foot on this soil in the early 1900s, in 1906 and seven, uh, they experienced discrimination overtly uh, racism overtly and also through law. They could not become citizens. They could not own land. Uh, they could not vote. And uh, in 1924, there were laws that were issued against Japanese for uh, barring further immigration to this country. 
And so the culmination of all of that understanding of the pre-existing racism, wartime hysteria, and the lack of political leadership led to those that toxic triangle being the justification for the mass incarceration and the apology came. Japanese Americans today are very, very uh, strongly supportive of black reparations for H.R. 40 that's going through Congress right now. And uh, hundreds of Japanese Americans, including myself, have written letters of support for H.R. 40 for black reparations. Uh, many Japanese Americans are also very supportive of uh, immigrant rights because we see people being caged up uh, with the same kinds of uh, vitriol and racism against them, as well as the lack of political leadership and political opportunism and rhetoric uh, being uh, set against immigrant communities. And I think that kind of matrix of understanding these forces, how things work together to uh, destruct people's lives is part of where I'm coming from too as a Japanese American and why my solidarity for Palestinians has grown so strong over the years. I've been asked to share a little bit about what does Palestine solidarity look like for one in, in my particular uh, vocation and uh, identity as an Asian American. Uh, one of the ways in which we've manifested uh, Palestinian solidarity as United Methodists is we responded to the uh, Kairos Palestine document, which was issued by Palestinian Christians in 2009, calling for international solidarity and support of the growing BDS movement, that is the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement that was initiated by civil society in Palestine. And uh, we formed something called United Methodist for Kairos response, which is the United Methodist international response to the Kairos document. And in a sense, the uh, solidarity movement for United Methodists and our activity has been to bring divestment resolutions to our institution. Um, we've been unsuccessful in passing resolutions where we're trying to divest from Motorola, Caterpillar, and uh, HP. But however, in 2016, prior to our General Assembly, our pensions board did announce that they set new policies that would exclude investments in Israeli banks and real estate companies. So that was a victory of sorts for us at that particular time. The other iteration that Partnership of Palestinians that had been involved in is a group called uh, Friends of Wadi Fukin. This group was a partnership that we started in 2009. And this was begun at the congregation that I was serving at that time in Alameda, which is historically Japanese American. And people felt that they wanted to begin ministry and relationships uh, with Palestinians specifically, not to look at Palestine-Israel as a big issue to examine, but to be in relationship with people, much like how people had been in relationship with Japanese Americans when they were subjected to mass incarceration. And this is the village of Wadi Fukin in the southwest portion of the Bethlehem district. It's a small agricultural village. You can see the map of the West Bank and my cursor is on Jerusalem and then Bethlehem and Wadi Fukin is around here. And this arrow points to the village of Wadi Fukin, which is really on the green line. So on the left of this is Israel and on this side is Palestinian territories. All the blue splotches are settlements, illegal according to international law, taking up Palestinian land. This is the town of Bethlehem. So the village is a little bit south uh, west of Bethlehem. Wadi Fukin is an agricultural village like many other Palestinian small villages, um, very much living off the land and feeling that relationship to the land, which I believe is so important for us to understand and appreciate. 
And this particular village has supplied produce to the Bethlehem marketplace for many years and is perhaps typical of many of the villages. A lot of children and families that are just trying to live and survive a, a normal life. But unfortunately, that's not possible under the conditions of the occupation. This is the big uh, challenge for them, the illegal settlement of Bitar Leet, which sits upon the hillside. And you can see the settlement was expanding out. The settlement has about 55,000 residents there now, and the uh, population of Wadi Fukin is something like 1,500. There are ultra-Orthodox Jews who are recruited from outside of Israel, and, and, and some of them come from the United States, some of them come from Russia, for this particular settlement. And they have this theological belief that the land belongs to them according to their biblical interpretation. And again, this is their greenhouse here, but you see what they see overlooking the hills of the imposition uh, and the threatening posture of the settlement. Uh, settlements uh, are, are illegal by international law and that the growth of settlements has gone incrementally over the years and even in the years of the Oslo Peace Accords, that growth has uh, expanded exponentially over time. And uh, in this particular case, there's sewage that comes down from the uh, settlement because it's coming down from the hillside and intentionally doing this to damage the crops of the farmers. This is the map of Wadi Fukin before the Nakba in 1948. And you can see the shrinkage of their land and footprint of their land up to today. One of the means of confiscation of their land is by uh, claiming land as state land, as this sign was posted in 2014, accompanied by Israeli soldiers. This was uh, an announcement that was made where 1,000 acres of land in the West Bank were being confiscated for state land, and a portion of it was in Wadi Fukin. That included the destruction of 1,300 fruit trees and one of the farmer's land as bulldozers came in, accompanied by soldiers and summarily demolished all of these trees. In our partnership with the village that we've had since 2009, uh, after this incident it took place, they came up with this idea of us helping them build a soccer field on land that was subject to being uh, confiscated. And so they uh, identified the land. As we began to raise some funds, they began to level the land and to make sure that they had an international sign up to let them know that they had international partners in the U.S. And so that if there were any threat to demolish this field, they would know that they were dealing with international partners. So the field went on to be constructed. They were able to get some other funds to get the grass in and also get lights in. And it served as a vehicle for them to have something good for kids to do, as well as have employment for people to build the field and also as a visible sign of international solidarity that they have today. And the field is still up this last Ramadan. They um, had a soccer tournament in the evening and dedicated their tournament to a young man who was killed by Israeli forces a couple of years ago um, as he was trying to help someone else go to the hospital. In 2017, after this soccer field was built, Netanyahu uh, came to the settlement of Batar elite and um, actually made announcement, um, which was the bold thing to him proclaim that they were going to expand the settlement of Batar elite. And this really accompanied this larger plan of settlement expansion throughout the West Bank and was sort of the initiation of an aggressive push for greater land confiscation 
and uh, property dispossession. Of course, people in the village could not take that news without protesting, but they were met with tear gas, arrests, and um, nightly raids upon people. Although the new administration uh, has replaced Netanyahu, their policies of this aggressive push for land confiscation continues on. And this is the latest manifestation of it as the village has found out that they are planning to confiscate land to construct an apartheid road that would be a road for the settlement enterprise, cutting through the portion of the village and accessing their land there. And it would complete the infrastructure of an already constructed apartheid road up above Al Walaja and coming down to uh, lower south to Hebron. So there would be farmland that would be annexed and destroyed in this process, olive trees that also would be destroyed. And so we're in a mode right now where we're attempting to avert the land confiscation and uh, we're visiting congressional offices to uh, try to uh, ask people to participate in a kind of multi-sectoral uh, intervention to stop the land confiscation, to stop the road from being built, and to stop the madness, basically, that's going on here. This is all tied to what Nicole shared at the beginning of this um, uh, gathering today about the uh, home demolitions uh, and uh, uh, evictions in Sheikh Jarrah and Stilwan. Um, it's happening in several other villages right now as well and continues to accelerate in this particular time. So we hope you'll be able to join us in our efforts to try to uh, intervene and stop this um, egregious land annexation and uh, confiscation. Thank you very much. And that was Reverend Michael Yoshi. Thanks so much for joining us. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. We're going to go to a song break. This is Nina Simone, Mr. Backlash. Mr. Backlash, Mr. Backlash, just who do you think I am? You raise my taxes, freeze my wages, and send my son to Vietnam. You give me second-class houses and second-class schools. Do you think that all colored folks are just second-class fools, Mr. Backlash? Backlash blues When I try to find a job To earn a little cash All you got to offer Is your mean old white backlash But the world is big Big and bright and round And it's full of folks like me Who are black, yellow, baby backlash I'm gonna leave you with a backlash blue Backlash, Mr. Backlash, 
Nina Simone, Mr. Backlash. Thanks for joining us on Indigo Radio. Our last segment today, we'll listen to Lada Kiswani talk about international solidarity and the need for us all to make connections between what's happening here in the U.S. and what's happening across the world. We have one last speaker. Her name is Lada Kiswani. She's the executive director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center that is in San Francisco. Lada is from Beit Iqsa and Akir, Palestine and was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. She received her master's in education at San Francisco State University and a bachelor's degree in international relations at the University of California, Davis. Lada has been active in movements against racism and war for Palestinian self-determination and international solidarity for the last 20 years. Thanks so much for having me and thank you to Brattleboro Solidarity and all the organizers of this lovely event. Um, I am speaking to you from Ohlone land, um, Oakland, California. I also want to thank my fellow panelists, Rico and Michael, for situating this conversation and Palestinian solidarity within a broader framework of U.S. militarism and imperialism and the legacies and the ongoing legacies of U.S. imperialism. Um, you know, other than my own struggle, uh, my people's struggle against apartheid Israel, learning about Hiroshima and Nagasaki was actually one of the first things that helped me understand the, the, the U.S. imperialism and militarism, but also shed light on the ongoing destruction, um, destructive role of the U.S. in the world and as a young student. Um, I want to start by actually quoting Vijay Prashad, um, because I think it's helpful to think about how it is that this in the United States we understand or don't understand um, U.S. foreign policy and U.S. imperialism. He says there is an inter international division of humanity. It is, it, it is as, a, as if there was a wall that separates our humanity, those who live in zones of great war and tragedy, are separated from those who live with the illusion of peace in countries that produce, produce the conditions for war, but deny that they have a hand in it. Um, you know, I think that's an important quote because one of the things I wanna start with is just really questioning, how is it that for far too long, so many of our movements here in the US have turned a blind eye to the role in the, um, of the United States and the rest of the world? Like how can and how have we for so many years talked about immigration policy without discussing U.S. foreign policy and its responsibility in forcing people to migrate due to the political and economic destabilization that the United States causes around the world? How can we talk about policing without discussing U.S. militarism, the history of colonialism and slavery? How can we talk about the struggle of indigenous people of Americas without talking about indigenous people globally, including that of the indigenous people of Palestine? And all of these indigenous people have been targeted by U.S. intervention. How can we talk about what's happening in Syria or Yemen without talking about U.S. imperialism, its partnership with functionaries, functionary regimes all across the Arab world? And how can we talk about Islamophobia, anti-Arab racism, about the Muslim ban, without talking about the Arab and Muslim countries that the United States is bombing the, and the construction of the war on terror and the ongoing exploitation and resource extraction um, at the hands of U.S. backed and led wars. 
how can we talk about climate justice without discussing U.S. imperialism? U.S. militarism is the largest single institutional source of emissions in the world. The U.S. military produces more emissions than over 140 other countries. Um, capitalism, in this essence, is based on the exploitation of human labor and the extraction of wealth and has to maintain that through systemic violence, that being militarism. So these new frontiers of extractivism to feed capitalism can only be maintained through war or the threat of war. Nobody willingly gives up their land or their livelihood. So, and in many ways today, we are indebted to the black radical tradition, the movement for black lives, indigenous water protectors who have consistently been clear about these connections, who have helped shift popular consciousness as it relates to internationalism in Palestine. They remind us every day that the nature of our struggles is global and so too are our freedom movements. They've been so clear about Palestine to oppose US militarism is to oppose other Western colonial powers in the Middle East and specifically the partner and instrument of US imperialism, that being apartheid Israel. As Michael mentioned, 1948 was the Nakba, what, what Palestinians call the Nakba in English, it means the catastrophe. It was the creation of the state of Israel. My father is older than the state of Israel. So 1948, the state of Israel was created, and it was indeed dependent on theft of land, water, and lives of Palestinians. The, on the ongoing colonization of my homeland, Palestine, actually began as a European settler colonial project in the 1900s, in the early 1900s. It's indistinguishable from other colonial um, projects across the world, carving out territories, promising a land inhabited by indigenous people to settlers from across the world, right? Israel's colonial project is very much based on attested projects across the world, namely North America and South Africa. Land dispossession, capitalist accumulation, systemic violence, repression, and all of the and all of this is actually done now globally. And the and Israel's continues to be an instrument to the ongoing interest that the U.S. has in continuing these practices. The, the, the Zionist colonial project is very much dependent on that kind of support. It's dependent on global networks of infrastructure and support. And I just want to name that the underlying cause of all this violence is apartheid's decade-long oppression of Palestinians everywhere. It's not one incident. It's not the spectacle of violence, similar to the ways in which the spectacles of police murders will often spark conversations about the nature and, and the, the history of policing. We know the problem doesn't lie with an individual officer or an individual incident of violence, but the institution of policing itself, the project of the prison industrial complex, its relationship to racism and capitalism. So to understand Palestine, you need to understand apartheid. You need to understand settler colonialism. You need to understand internationalism and the struggles of working people everywhere. Um, we have to remember, and I, you know, it's important as we talk about Palestine anytime here in the United States, that the only way that the destruction and land threat that, that Palestine has made possible, the settlements that Michael Yoshi just laid out, um, the violence, that, the ongoing violence we're seeing in Jerusalem is made possible by the ongoing $3.8 billion of U.S. support each year. The U.S.'s Israel, the U.S.-Israel partnership is very much a relationship of the global elite, the corporate class rooted in racial capitalism. That's why the U.S. is deeply invested in maintaining Israel as a proxy state in the global south. And in turn, Israel is deeply invested in maintaining that $3.8 billion of military and economic support. 
The U.S. is invested in using Palestine as a laboratory for weapons, surveillance technology, and crowd control taxes using tactics using U.S. dollars. And Israel is invested in exporting that to the rest of the world. That's why most police departments here in the United States train with Israel. And that is why apartheid Israel uses the playbook of the United States and its colonization of the Americas. Israel has also aligned itself with similar racist states and movements, including South Africa and Rhodesia and India, India's right-wing Modi movement. Israel has been used as an avenue for U.S. support of other right-wing movements across Central America, Latin America, and Southeast Asia. And um, as, we, as we talk, Israel continues to be one of the main supporters of the blockade on Cuba, other than the United States. So in recent years, we have seen a shift, right? Multiracial movements in the United States have been really clearly supportive of Palestinian liberation from climate justice movements, migrant justice movements, any movement struggling against policing, racism, or imprisonment. Mainstream human rights organizations, including the Human Rights Watch, have even labeled Israeli policies as apartheid. There's just no other way to understand what's happening in Palestine without situating it within that framework. And if we look at movements in motion right now, we find ourselves with an increasingly shared vision. And everyone is asking, what is our position on Palestine? It's become a key question that everyone has to grapple with. It's being woven into everyone's political program. And given Israel's long-lasting, long-standing efforts to whitewash its human rights abuses and position themselves within progressive spaces, particularly here in the United States, it is especially significant today that progressive and working class movements are recognizing Palestine as central to any social justice issue. If we're against the subordination of people across the world to the narrow interests of the capitalist elite, if we stand against exploitation and plunder of all people in the environment, if we are grounded in the principles of anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism, then we must resolutely reject any form of warfare in all our respective homelands. And we must support the liberation of Palestine pure and simple. Imperialism actually pits us against each other, but it also brings us together. Just as our adversaries are always sharing tactics and strategies they learn from one another, we too build power and strengthen one another's movements. And there's a long legacy of history of doing that between Japanese Americans and Arab Americans and J Japanese and Palestinian communities. And I wanna bring us now to BDS, the Boycott, Divest and Sanctions Movement, which was discussed a bit ago. BDS was created as a framework for international solidarity to give each of us in the world a role. And it has restored connections with Palestine with and unions across different movements across the world, student movements, indigenous, black liberation, feminist, LGBTQ, and on a scale that we haven't seen since the 70s when the PLO was aligned with global movements across the South. BDS resituates the question of Palestine within the occupation of Palestinian land, the expulsion of its people and the subjugation of those who remain citizens or subjects. BDS builds on the struggle against apartheid South Africa. It is modeled on the movement against apartheid South Africa, the relationship between community and labor, the potential of labor and economic power to disrupt systems of exploitation and put pressure on repressive regimes. BDS is really an effort to isolate apartheid Israel economically, politically, and culturally. And in turn, by doing so, it strengthens the solidarity movements against exploitation, against occupation and dispossession of the indigenous Palestinian people. And as a Palestinian, we don't see this as necessary only for the liberation of Palestinian people, because we understand 
understand the liberation of Palestine as a contribution to the global struggle against U.S. militarism and imperialism. And as we engage in tonight's discussion, we really want to gain insight not only on the violence of imperialism, but challenge ourselves to think about how can we su support liberation movements? How can we engage in BDS efforts? How can we continue to contribute to our collective liberation? And how can we put solidarity into practice, not just a concept, right? It's not just about our parallel experience. It's not just about, about comparisons. It's not about transactions. It's about our shared vision. Right? It's our shared liberation project. It's about collective strategies. What's possible today if we unite across communities to understand the domestic manifestations of racism, fascism, settler colonialism, white supremacy as inextricably linked to the colonial project of the state of Israel and the liberation of Palestine? How do we understand this moment and its vulnerability so we can build power to shift the conditions that are threatening the well-being of all people? So I would encourage everybody today to getting involved with the Brattleboro Solidarity Organization to support campaigns to defend the lands and lives of Palestinian people, understanding that as a responsibility and duty given the money that goes to the state of Israel from the United States and from our tax dollars, but also necessary if we truly believe in internationalism and collective liberation, to support the struggle in Wadi Fukin, to support the people of Sheikh Jarrah, to support the people of Silwan, the villages in Jerusalem, to support and start new BDS efforts and campaigns. Just as the alliances of the elite, our adversaries, make possible the suffering of so many of, of our people, our solidarity makes possible a new world and a new future for all of us. After all, what unites us and other oppressed people across the world is not just the ravages of imperialism, not just our suffering, but it's our shared legacies of resistance and our commitments and ongoing work and struggles and political projects towards liberation and the dignity of all people. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us today on Indigo Radio on the Brattleboro Community Radio Station, WVEW 107.7 FM. Please check out our Instagram and Facebook pages at Indigo Radio to listen to our shows and find links on upcoming events. You can also listen to our past shows on SoundCloud and the iTunes Store. Thanks so much to our guests. And if you'd like to contact Brattleboro Solidarity at brattleborosolidarity at gmail.com for more information on the campaign to end the annexation of West Bank villages organized by the Friends of Wadi Fukim. We're on the air every Sunday at 1 p.m. Tune in next week for more Indigo Radio content. And we're going to go out with a song. This is by Cats and Dinosaurs. It's called International Solidarity. International Solidarity That's the only way for me Got to do it, got, got to do it Ain't no other way we can be free International Solidarity that's the only way for me Got to do it, got, got to do it Ain't no other way we can be free Don't let them play us out against each other now Together we can bring that capitalism down International solidarity That's the only way for me Got to do it, got, got to do it Ain't no other way we can be free Bum 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 b
Can't be free. Yeah. International solidarity. That's the only way for me. Got to do it. Got, got to do it. Ain't no other way we can't be free. Don't let them play us out against each other now. Together we can bring that capitalism down. International solidarity. That's the only way for me. Got to do it. Got, got to do it. Ain't no other way we can't be free. Yeah. 